Okay, everybody. I'm going to let you into a secret that Sam's let me into. I thought he was playing um, Waymaker. He's actually playing Stormzy on the keyboard, which I like. I think that's great. Really good. Okay, great to see you. Tell you what, if anybody wants to come forward a little bit, you can come forward and see it on the front row. The front row is looking very white, no offence to you guys. So if anyone wants to mix it up a little bit, come and sit on the front rows, that's good. don't know where the, um, uh, where the youth, when the youth go, it is like a full-on exodus, isn't it? But uh, it is great to be here this morning. So we're going to get into the Word of God. First of all, Steve Lewis, I see that you've brought your mother with you. And it's Joyce, and it's Joyce's birthday. Happy birthday, Joyce. Joyce, I would just love to declare something over you because someone told me it was your birthday at the start of the service and I just want to read this over you. Um, It's from the book of Numbers in the Bible and it's a blessing and I would love to bless you and this is a church, we'd love to bless you. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So that's our prayer and blessing over you this birthday. Happy birthday, Joyce. Good to have you with us. Great. So we are going to get into the Word of God this morning. I said to the um, prayer team that came earlier this morning that I feel like I've been on tour with this message a little bit, if that is even such a thing. This is the fourth week in a row that I have preached it. But you know, I am still feeling just as excited about this message, just as expectant about God wants what God wants to say to us through His Word. I believe every so often something just gets stirred across people's hearts, across a, across a community, across a nation, even globally. And I believe something's stirring at the minute around the communion table. I think with our effort, maybe as charismatic churches, to throw out um, religion and to step into relationship, we might have disregarded some really important truths along the way and maybe not um, held them with as much weight as we could. And I just feel like God's kind of, you know, sometimes he's just so kind. He just kind of holds our cheeks and just redirects our our gaze a little bit. Is this going to keep happening, do you think? Sorry. Well, okay. Okay. So I think he just redirects our gaze a little bit. And I believe he's redirecting us to the table. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the power of the table. So I'm going to be having a look around um, scripture. We're going to be jumping around different scriptures. But really, the whole basis of what we're talking about this morning is, and hopefully it's up here, is the power of the table. And you know that I love reading the Word of God. I love delving into things that have been written, prayers, prophecies, things that have been written hundreds, thousands of years ago, and looking at how then do we dig around those scriptures and then allow it to inform the way that we live. We're called to be holy people, aren't we? A holy, a royal priesthood, a holy people, set apart, a holy nation, different, set apart. We're called to live differently, to shop differently, to do our relationships differently, to parent our children differently, to do singleness differently. In whatever season of life we're in, we're called to do it in a certain way. And scripture informs us the best way to do this. So I have loved digging around scripture and looking at feasts. This is what I've been looking at recently. The idea of feasts, of gathering around the table. As a third generation Italian, I absolutely understand why Jewish people take their feasting so seriously. And the, ta- the table's like almost the altar of the home. In a Jewish home, you look throughout scripture, you look throughout the Jewish culture 
the, and also whether you're in um, some different cultures as well. We don't always do it that well in England traditionally, but um, often in households, in different nations, in different cultures, the table is the altar of the home and it's almost the place where God meets with us. And we read that, don't we, in Exodus. We haven't got time to go into it too much now. But we read in Exodus, after the Ten Commandments have been given to Moses, that Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Nadab, Abihu, the priests, and the 70 elders of Israel, they literally go up to the top of Mount Sinai and they eat a meal with God. They sit and eat with God. Suddenly this God that can't be seen, you can't pronounce his name, he's seen. The unseen God is seen and he's at the top of the mountain and he's eating with his people. If you haven't, got, if you haven't read that before, I'd encourage you just to go and have a read in Exodus and read what happens. And the interesting thing is, you know, after that, a number of them come down and in their absence, um, a golden calf has been built to worship, and in their absence, some of them, um, that's been built, and they come down, and some of them end up worshipping the golden calf. Aren't we so funny, and broken, and fallen, that even we could eat dinner with God, and then you flick forward a few chapters in the book, and we're worshipping a golden calf. That just is our brokenness, isn't it? We meet with God, he transforms us, we're like, wow, this is life-changing, and then we get seduced by the next gold, shiny thing. It's just our brokenness, isn't it? But dinner with God at the top of a mountain. And I had a little look on Google of who were the most popular people to have dinner with. You know, has anybody ever asked you that question, if you could have a dinner party, who would you have if you could have anybody at your dinner party? So some of the top answers, we've got Nelson Mandela, Shakespeare, Anne Frank, Oprah, but all of these people trump all of that, don't they? God God trumps all of these people. Donald Trump wasn't on that list, um, which is not a political statement from me necessarily. I'm just observing that he wasn't on the list. But, you know, God sitting at the top of a a mountain and eating dinner with God trumps all of that. And I absolutely love to gather around the table. Despite being an out-and-out or an in-and-in introvert, um, I still love having people around my dinner table. And one of my friends sent me something funny recently, kind of like a photograph, a meme, and it said, this is how introverts host connect groups, or this is how introverts host dinner parties. If you don't know who the introverts are in the congregation, they're the ones that when Dan goes, it's a two-minute social, go and chat to people, they're like, oh, no. They kind of like slink down in their chair, get out their phone. They're the ones who go to the toilet in that time. Um, They're the introverts. But on um, on this photo, it said, it was this beautifully laid table, like a feast table. There was wine and feasting and lovely. And then um, just above the table was this little banner that said, please leave by 9 p.m. <laughs> so if you are an introvert and you need one of those banners, I can get it, get one for you. If you have come round to our dinner, uh, dinner table and not left before 9 p.m., please don't feel bad at all. We genuinely love having people around our table. Um, I love preparing the food at Christmas time. That was always my job from a little girl to all set the table it's one of my favorite things to do to make it all match and make like little um place settings for everybody and Hudson seems to have got that in his genes um and this father's day any opportunity to celebrate 
and get around the table. This Father's Day, it's not that long ago, and we got out the party hats, you know, those pointy party hats. And we got those out. We let the kids drink some orange squash out of Prosecco glasses, and we toasted Dan. We gathered around our table. We toasted Dan. We raised a glass to him. We thanked him. We called out all the stuff that we love in him. And we blessed him. We prayed for him. We thanked him. And it was just a really good example of the good stuff that can happen around our tables. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. There's power in the table. And this is the message that I'm going to look at this morning. So when we read the parables, and I've been reading those recently in the message version. The parables, you know, the bits where Jesus is talking, Jesus is talking, the bits in red. And I realize we can make a real caricature out of Jesus. We can really tame him. We can really make him very convenient to our way of doing things. But, you know, when you get your head in the scriptures and you read again what Jesus says, it is very, very challenging. We tend to always err towards, oh, there's so much love, there's so much grace. And that's true. But there's also so much truth. Jesus speaks truth again and again and again, and it cuts like a double-edged sword. There's stuff that is uncomfortable in there. There's stuff where I'd like to say, oh, Jesus kind of lets me off the hook with that. I was thinking Sunday attendance at church, and I don't ever want to get into register taking in the slightest. But, you know, when you can be tend to think, oh, you know, it's just grace. I just go off and do this, do something else on a Sunday. It's just grace. Jesus is like, leave your father and mother. Forget all that stuff. You follow me. It's all about sacrifice. It's a lot about dying to yourself to become alive in Christ. So I'd recommend, if we've got a little bit fluffy in our faith, there's a great theologian called Dorothy Sayers, and she talks about not cutting the claws of the Lion of Judah. And sometimes we do it. He's the Lion of Judah. He's powerful. He speaks truth, earth-shattering truth into our lives. So when we, get, when we get a bit comfortable and a bit cheap grace, get yourself into the scriptures and read what Jesus says. But Jesus told, told parables about the table. He talks about banquets, about guests who refused a dinner invitation, guests who didn't dress appropriately for a banquet, or those who choose to sit at the wrong table. And scripture is littered from start to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from the garden to the city. It is littered with examples of campfire feasts, entertaining angels, unleavened bread, poured out wine, and packed lunches, loaves and fishes, and all the way running through it, all the way is God's divine invitation from him to us, from heaven to earth, from the divine to the human, to enter into relationship around his table and to come and eat with him. That's God's divine invitation to every single one of us. We are invited to his table. We read it in Revelation. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If when we open the door to Jesus in our life, it's like he takes a place, a seat at our table and invites us to come and eat with him. And I love this. There's a version which makes Jesus sound like a white upper class Oxbridge graduate. 
And can we just remember, sometimes we tend to forget, Jesus is not a white middle-class Oxbridge graduate. Let's just remind ourselves of that truth. But it says this, Behold ye, I standeth at the door and knocketh. If any man heareth my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him. I love that. I went to university in Bristol and there were some really posh people there. And that's what they used to call that meal between tea time and bedtime. We call it a snack pot in our house where the kids get a bit of Cheerios, a bit of malt loaf and they eat their snack pot and off to bed. But they would say, Joe, would you like to come round to our house for sups? And at first I really didn't know what that meant. But then actually I mentioned this and someone said, no, sup isn't a posh term. It's like a Yorkshire term, like God saying, Invite me in and I'll sup with him. I'll have a sup with him. And, but God is neither a Yorkshire man, though often Yorkshire people don't think that's true. They do believe that Yorkshire is God's own country. But anyway, the point... Sup. I was in, what's up? Yeah, that's not, that's not it. No, that's the message translation. Anyway, what we can definitely see is that there's an invitation from the divine to the human, from, the, um, from heaven to earth, from God into humanity to come and eat with his people. And Jesus often uses the meals themselves to tell the parables. He si- can you imagine? Can you imagine being sat around a table with Jesus? If I could go back to any time in the whole of history, that would be it. Not tables necessarily as we know them. Often they recline on the floor or they have these tables. They're like little tripods tables with lids that you lift off um, and the food is under the lid. Or you have a communal pot of stew in which everybody dips their bread. Can you imagine reclining with Jesus, resting your head on his shoulder, dipping your bread in the same pot of stew as him as he tells these stories and he unpacks and tells us about the kingdom of God. And then we know that some of his most cherished words were spoken at his his last supper before his crucifixion, which we now know as the communion meal, which I'm going to unpack for a little bit, a little bit for us today. So we're going to explore a bit around what scripture teaches us about the table, what we can learn from Jesus's Jewish roots, because we know Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew, though we can debate that. It's up for an interesting debate. Was Jesus a Christian? I don't know, we can go round and round in circles with that. But what we do know is he was a Jew, he was part of Jewish tradition, Jewish faith, he went to a synagogue, and there's so much that we can learn when we take into account Jesus' Jewish background. The stuff that the disciples would have known instantly that we miss because we don't know the culture of the day. For example, and I think I've mentioned this before, at the Last Supper when Jesus slides across the goblet of wine and says, come and drink, what the disciples would have heard is, will you marry me? They would have heard a proposal, and I'm going to talk about that at the end. So let's get into this then. So we're going to look at three points of the t- that the table can teach us. The table can teach us about relationship, and we know it's always about relationship. When it's about Jesus, it's always about relationship between us and him, between him and his people. It teaches us about relationship. It teaches us about reconciliation. And thirdly, it teaches us about remembrance. So relationship. The table has always been a place of significance throughout scripture and throughout Jewish history. It was more than just a place to eat. So inviting somebody to your table was more than just about having a meal with them. It was a place of mutual trust and it was a place of vulnerability. Sitting down at the same table as somebody meant that you shared a protected relationship with them. It spoke volumes. Who you decided to eat with, it spoke volumes. 
sorry, let me just get to where we're going. Okay, so that's why when Jesus' decision to eat with marginalized, broken people, the untouchables of society, the Pharisees went crazy. They could not stand it. The Pharisees were so busy trying to keep hierarchy and religion and systems in place. And suddenly this man comes in and he's tearing it all to pieces. He is eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and disreputable people, their message, the Pharisees' message of the day was no undesirables welcome. That was the message. And suddenly Jesus comes along and he says, oh no, in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as undesirables. He's absolutely smashing the systems of the day. The systems of the day are reflected in everything. They're reflected in the architecture of the temple. So take the temple, for example. You've got the temple You've got the outer courts, which you could go to, uh, we could go to, Gentiles, Samaritans, unless you're a Messianic Jew in here this morning, that's where you could go. Then there's a huge parting, a huge division, a wall, something that separates you from the people that can enter a little bit further in. The next people that can enter a bit further in are the Jewish women. So can you see there's already, there's gender, there's race, there's culture, there's all kinds of barriers going on. Then the next place, the next people can go in are the priests. They can go in through the next door, through the next wall, a bit closer to the Holy of Holies. And then you've got the high priest who can enter slightly further in, and he can go into the Holy of Holies one time a year, only one time a year. So when Jesus comes and he says, I'm smashing the temple, he is doing something huge. What he's saying is, is I'm removing every single barrier. So whether you're a Samaritan, whether you're on the outside, no matter the color of the skin, no matter the gender, no matter the background, everybody is welcome to access the Holy of Holies. But even more than that, what happens is the Holy, it isn't that he just removes the barriers so we can get closer to the Holy of Holies. He says, what will happen is the Holy of Holies comes to live in you and you become the temple. Can you see? The Pharisees are seething. They are so busy keeping rule and regulation and hierarchy, and he is turning it on his head. He, by eating with certain people, he's not just being nice and kind. Like, God's nice and kind. I'm God, so I can't really say no to a dinner invitation because i got to be kind. It's in my job description. It's more than that. He's saying, I'm making a prophetic declaration about what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. There's no barriers. There's no things that you, no descriptions or things that you have to make. There's no hierarchy. Everybody is welcome to the table. Everybody. Whether we like it or not, that can ruffle our feathers, but it's scriptural. Everybody is welcome to the table. By gathering around the table to eat with broken people, Jesus is speaking right into the religious systems of the day. It is a table of scandalous grace. Why is it so scandalous? Because you're there and I'm there and because we're all invited. So to sit, we're invited to sit with him, to eat with him, to associate with him. By eating with these people, he is declaring he's in relationship with them. He's identifying with them. Wherever you're at this morning, no matter what level of brokenness, shame, pain, what disappointment, whatever it is, Jesus, by inviting you to his table, is saying, I identify with you. I am the God who is not distant. I am the God who's going to roll up my sleeves, sit next to you, get right into your space, and declare that I identify myself with you. What a God. What a God. What a Savior. Not distant, not religious, but kind and wanting relationship with us. 
We don't have to live like people fighting for a place at the table. We live like people who are seated at the table. Ephesians tells us that we are seated in heavenly places. We don't have to fight. That means there has to be, there needs to be no competition between us, no hustling, no overworking, no trying to earn it. We're seated. We're invited. There is a place for us, a place within our, with our name on. And interestingly, Jesus is really into hospitality. He expects hospitality from his followers. If you're a follower of Jesus, he expects that you will be hospitable. Matthew 25, 35, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And Jesus has been asking me this question. Joe, if you profess to follow me, who is sat at your table? Who's at your table? Do you have a hierarchy of who's allowed at your table? Do you place things in the way so people can't easily access your table? And I wonder if that's a question to us as a church. Who's at our table? I spoke to somebody a couple of weeks ago and it broke my heart. They said they'd been here for a couple of years and they'd been invited to one person's house for dinner. I felt convicted personally. But I thought, hey, this isn't who we are as a church. Do you remember we used to do May munchies? We used to get people around our table. The gold happens around the table. And because God's got this brilliant sense of humor, as I was planning this message, there was a knock at my door. Um, Stacy won't mind. She was really happy with me saying it was Stacy, And she was like, I've got the builders in. Do you mind if I come and sit at your table for a bit? <laughs> and like my, in my initial thought was, oh, no, I've got to plan a message. And it's my only child-free morning. And I've got a million things to do. And God just said, Joe, don't be one of those people that don't practice what they preach. So get around your table, please. I was like, yeah, of course, come in. Do you know, we had the best time. We had such a great conversation. And I wonder, amongst all of our strategies and all of our thinking about how do we engage with people, how do we evangelize, I think the table's our best asset. I think it's the table. I think it's inviting your neighbors around to the table. Remembering people in this location who don't have a spouse that come to this location that aren't saved. Invite them around your table. Inviting those people who you might not normally think. Invite them around the table. And so my prayer is, God, can we steward our tables and our relationships wisely. So that's the question, the challenge to all of us. Who is around our table? So it's a place of relationship. Secondly, it's a place of reconciliation. So in biblical times, uh, which actually, that's a bit of a silly phrase because I think we're still living in biblical times, actually. But, you know, um, first century Palestine and previous to that, the table represented a place of peace. So if two parties had fallen out, whether it was a fallout in the home, fallout within the um, culture, something happened in society, they would make a covenant together. So we know what a covenant is. If we don't know what a covenant is, it's more than just a contract. It's like a weighty contract before God. Um, it's binding and it holds a huge amount of weight. And what they do is they would reconcile. They decide to come together to put this issue aside. And in order to kind of really solidify the fact that there was now going to be peace and they were reconciled, they would eat a meal together. And within Jewish history, so remember, this is what, when Jesus is talking about meals, this is what the Jews would be, the disciples would have been thinking, or the Jewish people that he was speaking to. Once you'd eaten a meal together, you could never bring up that grievance ever again. It was done. 
There's marriage advice for some people here this morning. You eat and you never bring it up again. Now, this isn't like English stiff upper lip. We eat and we sit in silence and we never verbally mention it again, but we passive aggressively mention it all the time with our emotions and our looks and our stony silence. It's not that kind of reconciliation. This is a like, we kiss each other's cheeks, we put on a huge spread, we eat dinner together, and then literally we decide before God and before each other, we're never going to mention it ever again. So let's look at the story of Laban. Like, so we're in Genesis 31, we've got the story of Laban and Jacob. Jacob had fallen in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. Do you remember the story? Then on their wedding day at the last moment, Laban, the father, swaps Rachel for what scripture says is her less attractive sister. I think that's a bit harsh to her because beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But anyway, that's what scripture says. So at the last minute, he swaps Rachel for Leah. Now, I have questions about this because Jacob doesn't realize till the next morning. I did really have questions. but So presumably they've had the wedding feast, they've had the wedding night, they've consummated the wedding. And then he's like, oh, sorry, I didn't realize. But we're going to stick to the text because there's a whole load of questions there. So anyway, what happens then? So he's worked seven years to earn Rachel's hand in marriage, then ends up with Leah. And then he has to work another seven years. Um, and in the end, Laban gets, Jacob gets really fed up of all of Laban's shenanigans. He gets fed up, so he takes one wife. He takes two wives. He takes the kids. He's been busy, up, store, busy storing up all this wealth, and he's off. He's like, I've had enough of it. I'm off. And then we read in the scripture that 10 days later, Laban catches up with him. So he's in pursuit of him because Jacob's gone off with everything. He is in pursuit of him. And then we read, Jacob, what happens is he catches up with him. Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac, and he offered a sacrifice there in the hill country. And he invited his relatives to a meal. That's just not an invitation how we would do. That's weight. There's huge weight to that. After they'd eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. In other words, it's done and dusted. We've eaten together. Yeah, you ran off with both my daughters and all my livestock, and you're going to go and build a nation. But I'm never going mar- to mention it again. Jacob would have been absolutely secure that Laban would never have brought it up ever again because that is the Jewish culture. By eating together, they're proclaiming that they're reconciled. The table is a powerful place of reconciliation. Now think forward to that meal that Jesus cooks for Peter on the beach after Peter's denied him three times. Peter's done what we all do, hasn't he? He does, God, surely not, I I never will, I'll never do that, never me. Cockerel crows for the third time, he realized he's done exactly what he thought he wouldn't do. But then Jesus actively goes and seeks out Peter, and Peter's fishing, and he tells Peter to bring back some fish, and Jesus lays this metaphorical table for Peter on the beach, and he cooks him breakfast. So Peter, with all of this knowledge in mind, knowing that the table is a place of relationship and it's a place of reconciliation, it's a place that when you eat at it with someone, they're never going to bring up your grievance or the issue ever again. So Peter's messed up big time, and Jesus cooks him this meal. And can you imagine, with all the context, that that is the best meal that Peter has ever eaten? Because by cooking for him and laying a table, he's saying, there's a covenant that's been made between me and you and before God. You've messed up, but I'm never going to mention it ever again. And I'm declaring that we're in a relationship and we are fully reconciled. The weight of that on Peter. Can you imagine the relief that he felt? But I think of Judas. He never accepted the invitation. He took himself out of the picture. 
He was so burdened by his sin that he went off. And we can theologically argue round and round about whether Judas could have been saved or what, what was going on there. But let's not allow our sin to keep us from the table. When we've sinned and we've messed up and we've denied God and we've done all that broken human stuff that we do, Jesus just rem- rem- keeps bringing us back to the table. And this is why I think there's importance of communion. Keeps bringing us back to the bread, to the wine, to the gathering around his table so he can say, I'm in relationship with you. I'm identifying with you. I'm reconciling myself to you and you to me. There's no enmity between us. Let's not allow our brokenness to keep us from the table. It is a place of powerful reconciliation. And also for us, if we're, if we're at odds with people in our family, in our church, the biblical model, the Jesus model is to invite them around your table, to make a covenant of peace and to never mention it again. It's challenging, isn't it? But this is the context of which Jesus was talking. So it's a place of relationship. It's a place of reconciliation. And lastly, it's a place of remembrance. The Jewish nation were accustomed to feasts to remember who they were and to whom they belonged. I don't know about you, but I forget. You know my Jaffa Cake theology. I talk about it all the time. I often forget who and whose I am. I get caught up in everyday life. Kids, work, stuff. You know, we've all got stuff. And I forget to remember who I am and whose I am. And God knows that we do this. God knows that we're broken and that we're feeble and that we forget the truth, the weight of who we are. So he set feasts in the calendar of the Jewish nation. So they gather around the table and they would remember that they'd been brought out, bought out of slavery, that they'd been bought with a price and that they'd been set free into a new way of living. Isn't that just a biblical picture for all of us? That we gather around the table to remember that we were bought with a price, rescued out of bondage and slavery and set free into a promised land where we're shown how to live differently. It's a place of remembrance and it's a place where we can remind one another. When people mess up and they're behaving wrongly, we don't need to get around and gossip about them, point the finger at them, roll our eyes at them. We need to get them around our table and we need to remind them who they are. If one of us, if someone amongst us Me, you, whoever has messed up, something's fallen, our morality's fallen, our language has fallen, something's not quite right, get them around your table and restore them. Remind them that they're in relationship with Jesus, that they're reconciled to him, and remind them who they are. So I just want to finish with this. I talked about, um, there's so much more to talk about this kind of stuff, the Shabbat meal, all the different things that Jewish people do. Honestly, it's just so rich and so informative to how we can do our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. With each other. But let me just finish about that last meal that Jesus eats, where he eats a meal in the natural to talk about a principle in the supernatural, and he talks to us about the communion meal, something that we're instructed to do all the time. Now, we're not going to do it today. We're gonna, we do it once a month as a family here. We say, go for it and do it in your connect groups. But I'm getting into the habit of doing it by myself or with my family. Hudson loves it, getting the Bible out. He's got a special little cup and doing communion around the table. So if there was such a thing as setting homework off the back of a church service, that would be it. Go and eat of the bread and drink of the wine. So when Jesus slides over the glass of wine to the disciples and say, come drink, they would have heard, will you marry me? So I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner party where somebody starts acting a bit inappropriately. At the Last Supper, that would be Jesus because he's like, take your shoes off. I'm going to wash your feet. Also, will you marry me? They're like, what is going on with Jesus? 
But something's going on. He's sliding the wine and he's saying, come drink. Because in Jewish culture, what happens is a family of two people who are looking like they're going to get married, behind the scenes, they create a covenant. The two families, usually the heads of the families, they create a covenant. And then the two families gather together around the table. And the guy, if he wants the opportunity to propose to the woman, he pours a glass of wine, he slides it over the table and says, come and drink. If she picks up the wine and drinks, she's accepting. She's saying, you, you can propose to me. If she doesn't, it'd be a very awkward meal and everybody would go home. But that's what happens. And so she drinks it and he knows that whilst this covenant's being made behind the scene, that she's in on it. She's accepting. She wants to be part of the covenant. And then he says to her, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Because in Jewish culture, you don't go and get a nice um, 5% deposit on a new build and get your new house. What you do is you build an extension onto your father's house. So he would say, in my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place to you, place for you. Ringing any bells? So script, suddenly the Jewish, the disciples would suddenly be thinking, I've, I've heard this before, I get the context. And the son would go away and he would build an extension onto his father's house. Now he wouldn't know when he was going to go back for his bride. And the bride wouldn't know when he was coming. All she'd know is that she is to get herself ready because any day now, he can be coming for his bride. The groom doesn't know. Only the father knows. The father will go and expect, inspect the house and he will say, son, it's ready. Go and, go and get your bride. Isn't it just beautiful? Like how they would have known what's going on. So he would go... And he would go with his groomsmen, who would blow the shafars like the trumpets of heaven. And she would hear the shafars and think, my groom is coming for me. And she would walk out of the house and literally into her wedding feast. And into, round, into her wedding ceremony and then into the banquet table. And so it is with us. And Jesus is saying, when you drink the, port, the wine, which is the poured out blood, when you eat the bread, which is a broken body, remember that I am proposing to you. There's a covenant that's been made that says that we're in relationship, we're reconciled, and I want you to remember who you are and whose you are, because one day I'm coming back for you. You just get yourself ready. My father will tell me when the house is ready, the room just for you, and you will walk into the ceremony and around the table. And I just think that's so powerful. So let me just read you this just as we finish. The, Jesus has been raised. He's walking with his disciples. They don't yet fully understand. They don't really know who he is yet. And then it says this, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. There's something about gathering around the table, drinking the wine, eating the bread, where we begin to understand and get the fresh revelation of the weight of the covenant between heaven and earth, between God and his people, where he's saying, will you marry me? Will you be in relationship with me? Will you be reconciled to me? Come and eat with me. Just love it. So there's, there's so much more, so much more great teaching around there. But I would just really recommend, just with all of that kind of knowledge and context in mind, tonight and the night after, or with your connect groups, with your friends, gather around the table, pour out the wine, break the bread, and remember that we are a people in covenant with a God that is good and kind and desires relationship with us. Amen. Bless you.
Wow. Has that blown your mind? Has that inspired you?